You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you're going to introduce us to Markov decision processes. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we, we talk a lot about the relationship between machine learning and artificial intelligence. But in some ways, most of the machine learning that we do day to day is feels not that much like artificial intelligence. At most, it's something like kind of pattern recognition. In particular, supervised learning is something that, you know, seems to kind of take inputs and produce outputs. And at the end of the day, it just feels like a function that you're learning. And that is typically what you're actually doing. Unsupervised learning is a little bit more like finding structure and data and so on. And things are a little bit less well-defined. And it often feels a little bit more magical than, than supervised learning. But often when we really think about intelligent agents, we're thinking about, um, you know, things that are making decisions, right, that perceive the world and then have to make some kind of rational plan for acting based on uncertainty that maybe their sensors receive or their perceptions. And that, uh, you know, and then have to make not just a decision like whether or not this is a cat or a dog, but but actually really have to maybe reason with some notion of like utility over time and mm-hmm. so on. And so this is actually, you know, a fairly big part of machine learning that but that um, doesn't necessarily always interact that much with a lot of the, you know, with a lot of the rest of the community. So part of the reason that in some ways this kind of uh, aspect of machine learning is underrepresented both in the way that ML is taught and also when you go to conferences like ICML and NIPS is because it's super duper hard to solve this problem. And it's really challenging to make the jump from sort of simple toy type problems to the really hard, interesting problems that we feel like get to the underpinnings of intelligence. This is part of the reason that the company DeepMind that was acquired by Google not so long ago received a lot of attention. It's because they were using reinforcement learning ideas in combination with deep learning to solve problems that really were sort of decision-making over time. In this case, playing Atari games, which sounds kind of cute and trivial, but it's but it's really hard. It's hard for humans. And so by making progress on that, they impressed a lot of people and, and made it feel like there was interesting progress being made in, in this. So I thought today we would talk a little bit about um, a particular formalism, and I think kind of the dominating formalism for this, which is the idea of a Markov decision process, or MDP. Now, the idea with a Markov decision process is that we're going to, you know, like a lot of formalisms, what we're going to do is, is kind of imagine some fairly specific structure in the world, and then we're going to um, define our problem kind of very clearly. And hopefully, by being very clear about what our assumptions are and what our definition is, then we can wind up with an optimization problem or something that we can really solve. The idea with an MDP is that we have a, a set of discrete states in the world, and there are actions that you can take when you interact with those states. And that taking an action in a particular state causes you to move to a new state with some probability. So there's a distribution over where you might land after you take a particular action in a particular state. And this is why it has the name Markov decision process, because it's a Markovian process. So where you go only depends on your current state and the current action. And it's a decision process. You get to decide what action you're going to take. So the the question is, how do we decide what actions to take when? And so kind of what makes this problem interesting is that every, say, state action pair, and you might even just think of it, every state has a, a reward associated with it. So you, when you enter some, uh, some state that's good, then it maybe has a positive reward. And when it's bad, it has some negative reward. And the idea is now you're going to try to figure out how to operate in this environment in such a way to maximize how much reward you tend to accumulate over time. 
there are different ways we can think about it. Maybe you might ask the question, how do I accumulate the maximum amount of reward over the next 100 time steps over some finite horizon? And then there's uh, other ideas like how do I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to live forever, but how do I accumulate maximum reward on average per time step? And then there's other ideas like I expect to live sort of forever, but I'm going to discount future rewards. And, and this actually sort of corresponds to interesting other kinds of utility ideas like net present value and interest rates and things like that. So uh, getting, getting some reward tomorrow is not quite as good as getting reward today. Mm-hmm. And so we can formalize what it is we're trying to achieve in terms of reward over time. And then our goal is to find a policy that maximizes that sort of measure of expected utility. A policy here is kind of like a really interesting thing because policy in its typical meaning in the world is something that, you know, is, you know it's a politics thing that is the construction of policies that are sets of rules that govern the way that an organization acts, right? right? That yeah. somehow... Are, um, create like coherence for a government or or uh, a university or something where you know when you encounter this situation this is what you do as an institution and policies in um, markup decision processes are exactly the same they are when you're in this state you take this action but of course there are many actions you might take in a given state and so there are many possible policies the question is, what is the policy that maximizes our, you know, the reward over our expected lifetime or, or sort of our expected reward over our lifetime or whatever we have decided is going to be the kind of the game we're playing here? And so this is a very nice thing. It feels very, very narrow in some ways because we're talking about discrete states and discrete actions. But the problem is already interesting and hard, even in that limited setting. There are a variety of algorithms out there. Two of the most popular ones are things called policy iteration and value iteration. And these are kind of like dynamic programming type procedures for identifying the um, what, what a good policy is. And then there's other ideas where people solve markup decision processes by imagining them as a kind of a game against the environment where you, know, you take a move in this game by taking an action in a particular state. And then the, the environment takes a move, makes a move against you by transitioning you randomly to some state and so the environment isn't antagonistic but it moves you randomly procedures like the expect to max search algorithm for example so ideas from game playing kind of theory come out in in uh, in solving markov decision processes so markov decision processes you know are in some sense kind of a solved problem i mean that's that's not entirely true um because there are scalability issues when the state space becomes very large or the action space becomes very very large and continuous. But if we're talking about kind of discrete situations, then we have a pretty good handle on how to solve these well. But small relaxations of the sort of MDP idea cause the problem to suddenly become much more interesting and realistic, but also suddenly very, very challenging potentially. So the area of reinforcement learning uh, imagines that you have an MDP out in the world that you're trying to solve, states and actions and rewards and so on but you don't know how the world works. So markup decision process, as I said, you know what the states are, you know what the actions are, you know what the transition probabilities and rewards are, and you're just trying to come up with a good policy. Mm-hmm. But the reinforcement learning problem, you don't know how the environment operates. So I take an action in a particular state, I don't know where I'm gonna go. Um, and I don't know what reward I'll get when I get there. And so now you have this interesting problem where you have to learn what all of those, you know, what all those dynamics are in addition to learning your policy. So you have to learn a policy that somehow is going to need to learn about the world and then solve it. 
it may not surprise you that that's that's a much more realistic kind of way that the world, you know, uh, for things like robotics and so on, where you know the world is kind of coherent, but you don't have any idea what its dynamics are, and you have to discover them. And there are some very successful algorithms for this, but it's still challenging because now you're in this interesting situation where you need to sometimes do things that are suboptimal or that appear to be suboptimal because you need to figure out how everything how everything works. Then taking a further step. In real life, you also don't typically even know what state you're in. You know, we can imagine trying to solve a robotics problem or something where the robot's trying to navigate around. Well, it doesn't have just like ground truth on where it is. You know, maybe maybe the robot is trying to go get you coffee. You know, it gets rewarded when it brings you coffee, but it actually doesn't have some kind of oracle that tells it exactly where it is in the building, right? And so it's going to need to take some sensor measurements, maybe using a camera or some kind of rangefinder or GPS or whatever. Um, it's gathering data about where it is in the world or in the hallway or whatever it is. Those data that it's getting are noisy. And it needs to accumulate those data over time to try to ultimately get an estimate of what, of what state it's in. And this, as you can guess, is, is an even more realistic situation. Whereas in the Markov decision process, we imagine you know exactly what state you're in and there's no uncertainty here you're getting just noisy measurements of it. And this we call a partially observable Markov decision process. And so super realistic, it's exactly the kind of thing that we often find ourselves in. And suddenly the problem goes from being kind of reasonably well solved in the MDP to being almost totally impossible in the partially observable Markov decision process case. And this is because now you need to be able to reason not just about actions in the world and what their effect is on your state and reward, but you also need to reason about the information that you gather. So you actually need to include kind of a model for your own head in this action space. So some actions you might take would be, real, would be bad ideas. Uh, it would be suboptimal if you knew what state you're in, but are optimal because you gather information uh, under the partially observable case because you gather information when you do it. And so it's simultaneously very interesting and very challenging. Suddenly now, gathering information about the way the world works can have an explicit value, in particular in the kind of um, what are called belief state methods for solving uh, these partially observable Markov decision processes. They're called belief state methods because unlike just the state you would have in, a, in an MDP, now you have states of your own beliefs about the world. And you're manipulating those, you're manipulating your own beliefs as you as you wander around and take actions, which sounds crazy, but it's kind of, there's a sense in which that's the, the right way to solve these problems formally. So as I said, you know, the, the kind of the planning setup is, is kind of straightforward to write down, and there's some nice algorithms for solving it. But the second you kind of try to take that and and modify it to reflect the actual uncertainties associated with the world, suddenly the problem becomes super, super hard and super interesting, but this is also why why it's very difficult to make progress and why you're not interacting with interesting planning robots all the time. It's hard to do things in the real world. As it turns out, realistic assumptions are, are, are challenging. I mean, this is also kind of why we like, why we often like things like kind of supervised learning where the problem is pretty straightforward. Is this a cat or is this a dog? And that's a hard problem, but it's very well-defined. You know, and if you, well, and I should say, and if you want to get good at that problem, you can collect a bunch of data about cats and dogs. Whereas if you want to get good at the problem of, of interacting with a, com with a rich and complex world, um, then you need to build something that interacts with a rich and complex world. And robotics is super hard. It's very hard to come up with interesting problems like this that don't require you to solve a bunch of mechanical engineering problems first. 
And I, I feel like there's been many, many people who really wanted to make progress on AI who sort of impaled themselves on robotics. On the real world problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mechanical engineering is, is harder than we give it credit for. So we'll have some papers on this on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about the interaction between feature engineering and deep learning. Hi, my name is Sina Miran, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Maryland studying signal processing. First of all, I'm very grateful to you for your informative podcast, and I find it very interesting that we're able to hear the opinion of these big names in machine learning through your podcast, and thank you for that. Um, so a question that I've been thinking about for some time is about feature extraction, which is a very important aspect in machine learning problems. So before the era of deep learning, it seemed that the features used in machine learning problems were somehow enforced by humans. Uh, therefore, us humans actually had a very good knowledge about what features each machine learning algorithm was using. And we were basically trying to teach the machines to think like us. Um, however, nowadays I've heard that when doing deep learning with these deep neural networks, we might not have a clue about the features used in the hidden layers of the deep neural networks, or we simply do not care as long as it gets the job done. Um, I've even heard that some people are somehow pessimistic towards deep learning as they don't quite understand how it's doing this feature extraction process and they think of it as a big black box. Um, so I was wondering if Professor Adams can elaborate a little bit on this. Um, for example, has there been any notable attempts on understanding the uh, features used in the hidden layers and consequently expanding our own knowledge and intuition as humans about specific machine learning problems? Or on the other hand, uh, have we somehow tried to include our own intuition and knowledge about certain problems to deep neural networks? Uh, so basically, I find this interaction between humans and the machine learning algorithms on feature extraction very interesting. And thank you again for your podcast. There's a couple of really interesting questions here. First, you really articulate very well, I think, an evolving viewpoint on how to solve difficult problems with machine learning procedures. The way things always kind of were for machine learning um, is that you really needed to spend a tremendous amount of time doing really good feature extraction. And, and, and in almost all cases, this is still true, but it's become less true in some really interesting and hard problems because of deep learning. And those interesting and hard problems are uh, our computer vision, speech recognition, and uh, increasingly some other domains for which we have a lot of data like drug design and predicting the properties of molecules. In each of these areas, people over decades spent a tremendous amount of energy thinking hard about images, thinking hard about speech, and thinking hard about molecules to come up with a simple numeric representation that contained a tremendous amount of information about those kinds of objects that would hopefully be informative about the kind of labels you wanted to produce. Broadly speaking, the idea was that if you found a good enough feature representation, then any kind of off-the-shelf machine learning algorithm would work. That simple things like linear regression sitting on top of the right feature representation will do as well as something like a neural network. And I think this is a kind of an attitude that, that's permeated 
you know, that's been around for a long time. And I think it's still true in many, many fields. And certainly I think is the dominating way that, um, that a lot of industrial machine learning continues to be done. What's really interesting more recently has been that we finally have enough data about on a lot of these problems and that plus improvements in training procedures and modeling has made it possible to essentially use the same training signal that you would learn for the top level classifier or regressor or whatever to allow that training signal to sort of filter all the way down into the features themselves. So rather than using SIFT features for your you know, visual object recognition or MFCCs for your speech recognition or Morgan fingerprints or uh, some kind of off-the-shelf features for your, uh, you know, molecular predictions, then instead you you give a kind of a relatively sort of primal object to the neural network and you have it learn something like those features. And it's happened very often in the situations where you have enough data and a clever learning procedure and a rich architecture that you can outperform those feature extractions. And, and this often comes down to the fact that many of these feature extraction, these engineered features have a set of knobs that had to be tuned. There's a lot of them and they're hard to set and humans aren't that good at turning these kinds of knobs. And so um, given enough data, you can often find a setting of the knobs or some kind of similar feature representation that will outperform what the humans did. And this is something that comes up quite often. It just simply isn't the case, however, that all problems have these these kinds of properties. I mean, I think it's an interesting and uh, important set of problems that do, but it's still something we're trying to we are trying to figure out. You also express some other kinds of sentiment, in particular about the the interpretability of things like neural networks. You know, the fact that David Lowe engineered SIFT features doesn't really make them all that interpretable to me, to be totally honest. That somebody who knows a lot about images or a lot about speech or a lot about molecules, you know, the fact that they sat down and thought really hard about what a good vectorial representation would be doesn't really, you know, doesn't really necessarily give me a lot of insight. As a non-expert in those domains, I, I don't find myself that worried about something that my, uh, you know, that my algorithm is learning relative to just taking something that someone else who is not me has designed. But nevertheless, I can, I can see what you would mean. However, I think it undersells the interpretability that that people are able to do with things like things like neural networks, in which you know certainly in areas like vision, people um, have figured out ways to interrogate neural networks to ask what the hidden units in, in the network know. There was this sort of famous um, you know image of a cat neuron that uh, made its way, I think, into the New York Times uh, from a, the Google paper from a few years ago. Uh, about deep neural networks. And I think that's an example, I mean, or rather that is precisely an example of going into uh, a big network that's been trained on, you know, lots of computers and lots of data and ask, actually asking, what does it know about the world? So I, I think this isn't, it isn't necessarily the case that neural networks mean that you can't interpret the features. Moreover, I would say that a lot of these ideas give us ways to produce other kinds of interpretability. Um, you know, we can take neural networks in particular things like autoencoder neural networks and actually use them to perform dimensionality reduction to create better visualizations of complex data. And so they actually lead to new interpretable insights that you wouldn't have gotten through engineered features necessarily. So I think it's not really clear to me that um, that these, th these things are, you know, that they don't give us better insights. In fact, in kind of, I would say, between, I don't know, say sort of 2007 and 2010, when people were sort of just figuring out how to do a lot of neural network training on big 
image data sets, it was really common to put um, what we sort of jokingly call filter porn into the, uh, the papers, which are basically little images that are things that the neural network is sensitive to. So at the lowest level, these would be things like Gabor filters. But at higher levels, then they would, they would be things that maybe would be little templates of object parts and so on. And, and the point was to just show that there's some interesting interpretability about what this thing, what, you know, what this network knows. I guess I don't share the pessimism that these are really just black boxes in which we have no, no insights. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can reach us via Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS or via Gmail at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. One of the interviews we got a chance to do at NIPS this past year was with Neil Lawrence, and he's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, he's hilarious. But it, it was actually amazing that we were able to talk to him at NIPS last year because he was, of course, one of the program chairs. And then this time around, he's going to be one of the general chairs. So he's one of the people who really puts on this amazing conference. It was really great that we had time to chat with him, or yeah. they, rather he had time to chat with us. Yeah, definitely. And currently, Neil is at the University of Sheffield. I'm Neil Lawrence. Uh, I'm a professor of machine learning at the University of Sheffield in the Department of Computer Science. And uh, I was the NIPS program chair for 2014 with Karina Cortez. From the work side, I'm feeling quite a good place at the moment. I don't, I don't feel I have to... I'm actually starting to think a lot more about things like Cynthia Dwork's talking about, like the privacy issues. And what does it mean if we are successful, you know, in terms of... We're starting to tick all these boxes. I'm not worried about the the sort of AI singularity, I think that's quite funny. Um, it may, may happen or not, but it's not a real worry, is it? it versus the issues of privacy and anonymity um, and uh, what it means for your and my data to be accessible by interesting intelligent algorithms that we've created um, and for us to have no control over who has access to that data. I think that's kind of, uh, that's that's in the here and nows of, uh, and it's probably big onus on this community to start thinking very seriously about how to do learning in that context and balanced with of course the vital need for um us to solve the problems of modern society yeah well and, and i think so this gets back to you know what kind of values about science you instill in students before you send them off yeah. to facebook and google and, and these places that command this data the problem is not exactly you know academia playing with toy data sets that reveal you know someone's uh, you know, someone's inner workings or whatever. The, but how do we create algorithms that somebody can, uh, you know, that somebody can use and practice to solve the sort of business relevant problems, but that they both appreciate these these issues and have the tools to deal with them? Yeah, precisely. Because I think the, the, what worries me. So why wasn't I that worried about? You know, the here and now of the Snowden revelations in terms of the NSA have all this access to it. Because, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit, little bit naughty. I don't think anyone that bright works at the NSA. <laughs> you know why? It's not like Bletchley Park. It's not a very pleasant open atmosphere in terms of the way that we have at NIPS. If you were like a young NIPS student, one of the bright students, you wouldn't be able to tolerate it because you would come out of this community where we share ideas and, you know, we almost we sometimes kick ourselves for doing it because not on purpose. People take your ideas sort of accidentally without remembering where they heard them. You know, you think, damn, I shouldn't have mentioned that. But you come out of that fully open community where people are sharing stuff. Go into the NSA where you're not even allowed to tell your 
wife and kids what you're working on. I think that you know the time at which those uh, the, the intelligent people worked in those institutions is like Second World War era, uh, Bletchley Park, and uh, so on and so forth. I don't know. I, I know very few people that have gone from our community to work. At the, I, I can't name anyone. In fact, I know someone who came out of the NSA because they got into machine learning, got into our community, and and then decided, hey, this is way more fun than than security. But that's you know perhaps the here and now. I think that the more um, what, what we are doing, though, is we are actively pursuing usable, user-friendly approaches to being able to analyze data that will scale to millions of people. You know, it's, it's our objective to create the tools, um, in my mind, for personalized health to help people. Um, and again, there's worries there with insurance companies, but... Um, to help people understand their better their health status, to help people who can't afford to be monitored constantly um, to get better support. But the nature of those tools, the nature of the general things we're doing, means that those things are applicable. Uh, you don't need the... That's, in fact, entirely our aim. You don't need a bright, well-trained machine learning student to operate them. You need someone who's intelligent, who thinks about data in the right way. And, and the NSA will have more, more than enough of those. Um, and I, and the NSA isn't even the worst of our fears. I mean, there's there's other governments, there's other this this is going to become endemic. I mean, if we go into um, sort of where where do I see a real hope for um, development for helping people? It would be in sort of African economies. There's a you know John Quinn who was a PhD student of Chris Williams who gave a talk at NIPS uh, back in I think 2006 on fetal monitoring. Is uh, he's a Lecturer, he's a professor now at the University of Makerere in Kampala in Uganda. Um, and his main work is uh, practical solutions for problems of life in Uganda that rely on the um, uh, infrastructure, the mobile phone infrastructure, um, the sort of information infrastructure that is quite cheap to install, um, and intelligent algorithms, intelligent processes to sort of support people. And, and that's a fascinating idea because. Um, you sort of think, well, if you don't have roads and don't have big rail, but you do have an information infrastructure, you can you can still develop, and you can potentially even develop in more interesting ways, in nicer ways than than you know industrial revolution style development. Everyone move to cities and crowd in and deal with pollution problems, which we even see in Beijing now. You know, we not even resolved that in the modern era. You know, I was at the University of Manchester. Manchester was in the classics, cholera, everything else. So that was your development model. Let's all move together because that's efficient working. Well, maybe you don't need to. I don't know. It's not clear, but it's clearly really interesting. But there are serious problems with the stability of governments in a lot of developing worlds. Um, it's not down to the people. It's just down to the systems aren't in place. And, and so you need to sort of be quite careful that when you're installing these things, that you're ensuring the systems that you're putting in place in terms of your information infrastructure are robust. And, and Cynthia Dwork's talk, you know, differential privacy, these sort of ideas, we really need to take them on board now. Because, you know, the, the, the danger is that we become successful with our aims. We can build population scale models that can tell us intelligent things about what people are doing. We already saw with Netflix, I mean, that was the thing that really impressed me when we were all playing with Netflix data, just how much you could learn about a movie just by people's ratings of the movie in terms of its subject, in terms of what movies it was similar to. You had no, inf well, you had information on that if you chose, but even if you ignored that information, Absolutely. you know, all the rays of the Lost Ark movies were clustering together and they were somewhere near Star Wars but then the new Star Wars was somewhere distant. You know, all this, it's like, whoa, that all comes out just from 
people's five shot ratings. Yeah. So you realize your oh, population scale data, the sort of stuff we start learning about people um, is enormous. Um, and that I think has really, you know, I think that the fear is we will succeed. We don't need super intelligent AI in this domain, do we? We just need the sort of stuff we're doing at the moment that we will deliver on, and you can already see the dangers in terms of uh, individual people. Well, you already see it too in like simple ways where you you basically make a tool that is smart enough that someone who is you know slightly nefarious and doesn't need you know doesn't need that much skill in order to do something that really worries you. You know, recently, uh, you know, this executive at Uber, right? Uh, you know, used one of the tools that they that, that that Uber has built in order to track a journalist that he had a grudge against. Oh, right? right. And uh, and somebody built that tool. Somebody made it easy to parse that data. Yeah. So that uh, you know, probably there's very good intentions for understanding the behavior of their customers. Yeah. And somebody who had you know not the greatest intentions very easily used that for you know for purposes that should worry us all. And I think that that's something that I find. Worrying the extent to which that can happen and worrying the extent to which we haven't really defined boundaries. So we seem to currently still be operating, you know, as an Englishman, I, I view them as sort of Englishmen living in uh, New England in the late 18th century, where, who set down a series of principles for the rights of man, right? Um, now, we're still operating according to those principles as if they're somehow biblical rather than just emerging from a free-thinking group of people who, who talked about how the future should be with the experience of free trade, with, with the new ability to move around the world and the idea of what a nation was, these sort of radical thoughts. Well, those are amazing thoughts and they're 250, 200, 300 years old. They, they date back to. Um, but it's almost like we can't map those thoughts onto the world of today. We have to sort of consider the right for free speech. I think that's a really interesting one. It's not so much that it's clear that there should always be an absolute right for free speech. It just gives you a line over which you say you can't cross this. You know, maybe and in the UK, we don't have it as, as, as fully as, as you do in the US. And there are some issues as race, hate, speech and this sort of thing. And clearly there's issues. But it's a nice, simple rule that gives you yeah. some, something to talk about what's right and what's wrong. And um, what seems to be going on now, to me, is a lot of our governments, a lot of our companies, uh, basically, they're not concerned so much about what the rights uh, for an individual are. They're concerned about how they can make the most money or do the most things you know, within the framework which they've been given, which is 250 years old. That there needs to be people who are actually starting to think, well, hang on. Um, you can see this going in some quite dark directions in, in terms of all those fears of the, these free-thinking gentlemen of the late 18th century about what nasty kings might do to them. Um, you know, they can all be applied in terms of today, in terms of what democratically elected governments can do to us or and that's or the nice case or, yeah. yeah but then dictatorships or you know governments where they've got evolving uh, systems of, of data analysis which where they're starting to learn about the population where there's a large incentive to manipulate your population's data I mean a, a big problem in African countries is manipulation of census data to make it appear that there are more people represented in states which are supportive of the current government than there are so that you know because even 
even though there's democracy systems in place, there's ways of trying to manipulate it. So there's a lot of incentive to play with this data and push this information out. Information is power, and, and governments want to control that. Um, naturally, even if they're well set up in modern societies, they gravitate towards trying to control that. Yet, and there is talk, you know, Tim Berners-Lee has talked about a new Magna Carta or whatever. Um, and, and I also think I'm really fearful about like the sort of people who say lock it all down. I, that's not helpful either. You know, but there has to be an open debate about what principles, you know, I sort of think there should be sort of some sort of ownership of personal data that allows you to delete it. It's different from the, the Google uh, forget me thing. But, you know, you know if my data, um, these loyalty card companies have it, but I don't think I've got a right to tell them to delete it. I, I'm not sure. That, I mean, there are some rights emerging. And I think that this is a really uh, important area um, which uh, is emerging. And I think we'll, we, should, we should be paying attention to that in NIPS as well because uh, people who are making these algorithms have a responsibility to um, ensure that uh, they're not the ones that are enabling the people who are less technical, as the example you gave earlier, to do nefarious things. I mean, it seems like there are, is a good value system in place in the research community in many ways, but but part of our you know part of our shtick is to make things that other people can use, and yeah. then it's out of our hands. Absolutely. Neil Lawrence of the University of Sheffield. He's just great to talk to. Yeah, you know, and Neil, I should say, in addition to doing great science and performing wonderful service like organizing NIPS, um, he also writes a blog that I really enjoy called Inverse Probability at inverseprobability.com. And he's been known to also write some really interesting articles in the popular media like The Guardian um, for, you know, on issues like, uh, like data privacy. Mm -hmm. And we'll have a couple of those up on our website. So that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.